It's time for Radio Cows, a weekly program from the Central Arkansas Library System. Every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 FM, we will share music from our archives, content from our resources, such as the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, and information about what's happening in the library system. We invite you to let us know what else you want to hear by contacting us at radiocals at cals.org. This program is presented by the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies and the Cows Community Outreach Department. For more information about Radio Cows, including links to resources mentioned in our segments, please visit the Butler Center's blog at butlercenter.org. The Arkansas Literary Festival is an annual event presented by the Central Arkansas Library System. It is the state's premier gathering of readers and writers. Earlier this spring, the 13th annual Lit Fest featured over 80 presenters, including Ryan Fertell, who discussed his book, The One True Barbecue. Rex Nelson, a frequent contributor to Radio Cows and director of corporate communications at Simmons Bank, moderated this presentation at Whole Hog Barbecue in Little Rock. Let's listen to a generous portion of this LitFest program. Our speaker today is Louisiana born and raised. Uh, some of you, I know you were talking to him, are, are familiar with his uh, grandmother was Ruth Fertell of Ruth Chris Steakhouse uh, that started that famous chain of upscale steakhouses. The one in Arkansas is up in Rogers, not here in central Arkansas, but Ryan is quite a writer. We met, uh, did you say 2008 was the event, uh, at a Southern Foodways Alliance event uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, has really, in the years since then, delved very deeply into the Southern food culture. In fact, he has written, uh, and we've got much of the staff here, for our Arkansas-based Oxford American through the years. We are proud, of course, to have the Oxford American based here in Little Rock, one of the nation's foremost literary quarterlies. He's also written for Garden and Gun, Southern Living, numerous other magazines. His first book was called Imagining the Creole City. It's a study of the writers in the 19th century in New Orleans, quite fascinating. And then the book we're here to talk about today, The One True Barbecue, Fire, Smoke, and Pitmasters Who Cook the Whole Hog. And it's, it's not just food. I mean, it looks at the history of the South. It looks at race. It looks at labor. It looks at our whole foodways tradition. Ryan grew up in Lafayette, uh, working in one of his family's restaurants. He went on to get a master's degree from the New School for Social Research and then get his doctorate in history from Tulane University. He is now a part-time professor at Tulane University and a visiting professor of urban studies at the Bard Early College in New Orleans. He calls New Orleans home, but we're delighted to have him in Little Rock for the Arkansas Literary Festival. So please help me welcome Brian Fertel. Ryan? Thank you, Rex, and thanks for coming out. I'm going to read a bit. I'm going to read maybe 15 minutes. I'm going to read the, the opening short chapter of the book, and then I'm going to read half another chapter. I'm going to, I'm going to 
read about the individual, the man who really introduced me to barbecue, who introduced me to whole hog barbecue. His name was Ricky Parker. Of the pit masters, the people who cook barbecue, whole hog barbecue, uh, featured in my book, he's kind of the closest or was the closest in proximity to where we are now. Most of the book is located in the Carolinas and West Tennessee. So I'm going to read for a bit. All right, this is uh, from the introduction, which is called A Dying Breed. Some people count sheep to lull themselves to sleep, but Ricky Parker counted hogs to remind himself of his own existence. Whole hogs, massive beasts, 180 to 200 pounds apiece, fed and fattened to his specifications, slaughtered at the local abattoir, head and offal removed and ready for roasting and smoking in his cinder block pits. This is what Ricky called barbecue, whole hog barbecue, the only barbecue that he and all of Lexington, Tennessee ever knew. The one true barbecue, a hog, slow simmered over hickory coals and ash, its flesh and fat and skin primed for the cleaver and chopping block after 20 plus hours bathed in smoke and massaged by fire. He served five, ten, as many as two dozen hogs a day. That's 200 pound hogs a day. Every day but Sunday, sometimes running out of fresh meat for chopped barbecue sandwiches well before noon. Ricky couldn't say for sure how many hogs he'd prepped since 1976 when he began tending the pits at Scott's Barbecue, the year early Scott took the 13-year-old boy on as an apprentice and eventually a son. It was immediately clear to Scott that no one could smoke hogs like Ricky. He was a pit master, body and soul, born to the rough trade. He would master pit, fire and hog, shovel, sauce and spice, he would master barbecue. The young Ricky could remain on his feet for 20 hours straight. Cleaning the pits, stoking the fire, shoveling coals, smoking hogs, serving customers. And the customers liked Ricky. They liked him a lot. He was courteous, handsome, a bit wild, dedicated to finishing the job and doing it well. Ricky would eat standing up. I eat on the run, he liked to say and he rarely, if ever, slept for more than three hours a night. Sleep didn't come easy when you were cooking with live flame. He'd close his eyes and experience terror-filled dreams of his pit catching fire, his hogs rendered inedible. The Henderson County Fire Department arriving too late to save his smokehouse, which now lay a conflagrated heap of charred timbers and sheet metal. Ricky would rather stay awake to watch the fire. His eating and sleeping patterns, or lack thereof, remained constant through the summer of 2008 when I first watched Ricky Parker smoke a pig. And at first sight of him, slender and gangly, his skin bronzed from working in close quarters to fire, I questioned how he could possibly find time to even dress himself. Energy enough to shave that perfectly sculpted Van Dyke beard. Three hours of sleep and working like this, how can he be standing? How can he be alive? But Ricky assured me that this was all a part of the whole hog pitmaster's life. He repeated a boast that he recited to just about everyone who came to interview him. And I didn't discover Ricky. 
I got to buy four or five pairs of shoes a year, he said. I do a lot of walking, a lot of pacing. He told me that he was married to his work more than he was to his wives, past and present. He spoke in self-mythologizing tones. He was special. He was an original. He was a dying breed. For all he knew, he was the last of the great pitmasters, a man who strove to smoke as many hogs as humanly possible. Ricky counted sleep in hours and shoes in pairs, but above all else, Ricky counted his life in hogs. Annually, beginning with my first visit in 2008, I'd make a pilgrimage to eat Ricky Parker's barbecue. And each year, as I ate my chopped pork sandwich, he'd tell me about a future date circled on his mental calendar, July 4th, 2013, the holiday weekend over which he aspired to cook 100 whole hogs. 100. Hardly an arbitrary number crudely culled from a beer-fueled backroom bull session, but the height of human achievement, the age of modern Methuselahs, in sports the most notable statistical achievements, one zero zero, a symbol of per perfection, 100 pigs, a pitmaster's dream, three digits worth of whole hogs, a century of swine. Ricky Parker knew with some certainty that no pitmaster living or dead had reached that number and through a complex formula of weather data, gasoline prices, hog futures, and unemployment rates, Parker calculated that 2013 would be his year. He could stop counting hogs after this achievement. He could slow down, maybe ease into retirement, pass the pitmaster's shovel off to his son, Zach. He might even learn to sleep. But until then, he would keep on cooking because no one could smoke hogs like Ricky. No one worked to make barbecue like this anymore. Few cared like Ricky Parker, the world's greatest pitmaster, the man who counted hogs to keep both himself and barbecue alive. That was Ryan Fertel reading from his book, The One True Barbecue, for the Arkansas Literary Festival earlier this spring. We'll hear more portions of his talk in future broadcasts of Radio Cows. If you'd like to hear the full program or learn more about the fest, please visit www.arkansasliteraryfestival.org. This month in Arkansas history. On May 10th, 1927, famed author Ernest Hemingway married Pauline Pfeiffer, of Piggott, Arkansas. Pfeiffer was in Paris, France on an assignment for Vogue magazine when she married Hemingway. Hemingway later lived with the Pfeiffer family in Piggott for a brief period and wrote part of his novel A Farewell to Arms at their residence. Today, the Pfeiffer family home is preserved as the Hemingway Pfeiffer Museum, managed by the Arkansas State University. Vivian Schiffer is the daughter of Rosalie Santine Gould of McGee, Arkansas, who preserved a large collection of art and documents from the Japanese-American confinement camp at Rower during World War II and donated it to the Butler Center in 2010. Ten camps were built after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor that pulled the United States into World War II. More than 110,000 Japanese Americans, mostly U.S. citizens, were forcibly removed from their homes and businesses on the west coast of the United States and taken to the camps. One of them was at Rower and one was at Jerome, Arkansas. Rosalie Gould championed the preservation of what was left of the campsite at Rower during her time as mayor of McGee. 
and became known throughout the U.S. and beyond for her determination to tell this powerful American and Arkansas story. Mrs. Gould's actions inspired her daughter Vivian to write a novel based on the experiences of the people in the camp at Rower. She also produced a film on the camp titled Relocation Arkansas. Her book is titled Camp Nine, and she spoke about it and about some of the remarkable events that grew from the lives of the 8,000 people held at Rower, including several hundred who went off to fight as members of the U.S. Army's famous 442nd Regimental Combat Team, serving the country that had upended their families. Her talk was part of the Butler Center series Legacies and Lunch in October 2011. She called her talk The Day That Rower, Arkansas Saved the World. Roar saves the world. I'm going to tell you how Roar saved the world. Two very, well, first of all, I think the details of the um, internment camp experience in Arkansas are so interesting. They, they fascinated me so much, which is why I ended up writing this book. And I tried to use a lot of uh, actual events in the telling of the story. But there were two very interesting things that happened uh, as part of this experience. Um, the, first of one, the first one was, if the rationale behind all of this was to relocate Japanese Americans from the West Coast, that's why they were called relocation camps, then they had to separate the people who were supposed to be loyal to the United States from the people who were supposed to be disloyal to the United States. And of course, the presumption at the beginning of World War II was that so many people would be disloyal, which turned out not to be the case at all. But they instituted this... Um, the system of weeding out the disloyals, and they called it the application for leave clearance. And if you answered, and everybody over the age of 17 had to answer this series of questions, and if you answered the questions to their satisfaction, and you had a sponsor, you could get out of camp and you could go live somewhere else, and a lot of people did that. But if you answered the questions wrong, you were branded a disloyal. And if you answered them wrong enough, you were sent to Tule Lake, which was a prison camp in California. So those questions figure heavily into the story of Camp Nine, and um, they also, it was a tragic event in American history, and it really divided a lot of families, which is why I found it so powerful. The other thing that happened was that in February of 1943, I think if I have my date correct, um, the government lifted the ban on having Japanese Americans serve in the military that it had instituted after Pearl Harbor. And they formed the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Uh, and it, it was compri it, it comprised entirely Japanese Americans. Well, all of the people of Japanese ancestry to speak of living in the United States were living either in Hawaii or they were living on the West Coast in California, Oregon, and Washington. And because they were all Japanese American, I guess some military brass thought, well, these people are all alike. We'll just put them in the same unit. Well, they weren't alike. They were culturally very, very different. And they, had, they were training at Camp Shelby, as far away from the West Coast as they could get. And they had so much trouble getting along that there was serious consideration given to disbanding the 442nd. I'll tell you how it happened in Camp Nine. Let me set this up for a second. Um, David Matsui has an older brother, Henry. And Henry has joined the 442nd and is... Um, training at Camp Shelby, and he comes home, and he brings his Hawaiian friends. This is a, this was an Army-sponsored party, and it actually happened. 
A miniature soldier with dark olive skin leaned against a square whitewashed wood column and nodded his head in time to the song. His name tag read In Fujita, and for the moment he was the center of mother's attention. I was at university, he was saying, in an accent so thick I could barely understand his words. The bombs hit, and let me tell you, we were Johnny on the spot. Reserve is what we were, but far as we were concerned, they needed us just the same. Henry thrust a thumb at Infugita and grinned, and then the army kicked Ned and his buddies out. The Nisei, the first generation of American-born Japanese, were forbidden to defend their homeland, but they fought anyway, just to regain their rights to serve. Finally, the army decided it needed them, but it didn't realize there was a difference between the Hawaiians and Californians. They put them all in the same unit, but it would take the shared struggles of Camp 9 to make them the cohesive force they would soon become. And I'm skipping a little bit because I'm running out of time. Ned took a noisy swig from a bottle of beer. Lots of fist fights. He moved his head in a broad circle. What a bunch of dopes, he said. He thrust the bottle toward Henry. We didn't have any idea. They were sending it home. Here, he said, swinging the bottle wildly in the air, the effects of the several beers he'd consumed becoming obvious. He swallowed hard. We didn't even know what they'd done to Henry's dad. He assumed a menacing stance. Let me tell you, when I saw Question 28 and saw that they took away Henry's dad and Henry was still going to fight, Mrs. Matsui sat up straight as if a bullet had found her. A red tinge spread rapidly across her cheeks before she bolted from her chair. She'd made her exit so skillfully, however, that it seemed Henry and I were the only ones who noticed. Henry's eyes darted fleetingly after her, but he returned his attention to Ned, who tapped the bottle against his forehead to punctuate his closing comment. No earthly idea. For the briefest of moments, Henry's eyes met mine. I didn't know whether he was thinking of his mother's sudden disappearance, or like I was, that he would be leaving in the morning, this time for good. The boys would return to Camp Shelby, but it would be only days before they left for the front. He hesitated, then wove his way through his tipsy comrades, comrades toward me. Sorry about that, he said. About what? He shrugged his shoulders and cocked his head in the direction of the now-departed Ned Fujita. Where's your dad, I asked. He shifted his weight. He's in a prison camp in California called Tule Lake. What for? His explanation was a bit confusing at first. He called the questions a loyalty oath and finally told me what they were. One asked if you would be willing to serve in combat duty, he said. That was question 27. He shrugged. That one was okay. But question 28 asked if you would faithfully defend the United States from all foreign and domestic attacks. What's wrong with that? That wasn't all. It went on to ask you to renounce your allegiance to the Emperor of Japan. It's a trick question, Chess. He drew his mouth tight. First of all, it begs the question. It assumes that you have allegiance to the Emperor, which is just stupid. I've never even been to Japan. So if you said yes to that, it implies that, at one time or another, you had some allegiance to the emperor. But also, my mother and father are Issei. That's what we call my parents' generations, generation, the ones who were born in Japan. They can't become U.S. citizens anyway. 
If they were to be deported to Japan, they might not be taken in there either. They'd be lost between two countries. I waited for him to go on, but he paused. Did your dad say no to the question? He was too old to serve in the military, so he answered no to 27. As for 28, well, he answered no on principle, no and no. The men who answered no to both questions are called no-no boys, and they sent all the no-no boys to Tule Lake. They're going to deport them to Japan. So the reason that that figures into Roar is because, because the Hawaiians and the Californians could not get along. Somebody in the Army actually had a really good idea, finally. They decided to bring the Hawaiians to Roar so they could understand what the mainland Japanese Americans were dealing with. And Hawaiian Senator Daniel Inouye, who was there, who was one of the Hawaiians who came, describes very movingly in, in the University of Arkansas at Little Rock film, Time of Fear, is a wonderful interview with him about this subject. And he says that they came away from Roar, and he called all his buddies together, and he said, that's it, boys. We're brothers now. The 442nd went on to become the most highly decorated regiment in the entire history of the United States military, including 21 Medal of Honor recipients. They won campaigns that nobody else could win. They would send the 442nd in when everything else had failed. They liberated Dachau. They saved the Lost Battalion of Texas. They had a, well, it depends on who you ask. They suffered either a 93% casualty rate is a low figure, and 315% casualty rate is the higher figure. And they had a big problem with wounded soldiers leaving the field hospitals against medical advice and going out on the front line. And all of this was made possible by Roar, Arkansas, in Deshaies County. In short, Roar saved the world. And I don't want to give away the, oh, and let me just say, to commemorate the 442nd, the prisoners of war erected this monument there with the star on it, and it's still there, and if you haven't been out to Roar to see it, please go see it, because it's absolutely moving. Uh, and I don't want to give away the ending, but let me leave you with one last reading. Now, Camp 9 begins with Chess waiting for David to come, and he does come, and he has one last rhetorical question for her. David faces the cemetery. Why is it that men like Henry could look past what was done to us and go out there and fight, but this nation couldn't get past the way we looked? He opens the car door, and sunlight flashes from the window. Listen, Chess, he says. I'll always remember you and your mother. I'll never forget the kindness you showed us. And I guess now is the time to say the thank you I never said. But now you know why I live in London. That was Vivian Schiffer speaking about her book, Camp Nine, a novel based on the experiences of people held at the Japanese-American confinement camp at Rower during World War II. Her talk was part of the Butler Center series, Legacies and Lunch, and can be heard at arstudies.org. We will be presenting more of her talk on future episodes of Radio Cal's. Her novel, Camp Nine, can be checked out at many Cal's locations.
River Market Books and Gifts, the Central Arkansas Library System's Gently Read Bookstore, offers patrons a wide selection of gently read books at amazingly low prices. New books, rare collectible books, and unique gift items are also available. Friends of Central Arkansas Library's members receive a 20% discount on all purchases. River Market Books and Gifts is located in the Cox Creative Center, 120 River Market Avenue, on the main library campus in the River Market District. This is David Strickland. I'm the head of the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies, and I'm talking to Guy Lancaster. And Dr. Lancaster is the head of the Encyclopedia of Arkansas History and Culture, which is uh, having its 10th birthday party this afternoon. Uh, Guy, why don't you tell us a little bit about the EOA? Basically, it's a free online resource containing anything you could want to know about Arkansas history and probably plenty you wish you didn't know. (laughs) Well, we'll talk about some of the things you wish you didn't know in a little bit. But give us a sense of the scope of it, the kinds of things that are in their their, uh, entries on Arkansas history. Well, it's all all the uh, usual suspects are certainly covered. We've got all the counties, all the county seats major rivers, governors, congressmen, senators, even that guy named Bill Clinton. We mm-hmm. have an interview. He made him. it in. He, he made it in. <laughs> uh, but it's it's much more than that. For example, in terms of local history, Arkansas has about 500 incorporated municipalities. We have entries on 600 communities, you know, including a lot of unincorporated municipalities and we're growing in that respect. We have entries on a lot of National Register of Historic Places properties. Um, We have entries on not just the major battles of the Civil War that were fought in Arkansas, but the hundreds upon hundreds of tiny little skirmishes that occurred all throughout the state. Often, you know, half a dozen people meet another half dozen people, exchange a few shots, and it's over. But someone wrote a report on it, and it <laughs> officially gets tagged, you know, skirmish at Cypress Creek, whatever. So we have all that, authors, both famous and obscure, really anything you could think of. And because the Butler Center is not just the Butler Center for Arkansas History, that's our main thing we do. But Arkansas Studies includes flora, fauna, weather. Uh, so right. you have some scientific and other things. We, we do. Uh, weather phenomenon from tornadoes to you know, even tropical depressions and storms, because as you might remember with hurricanes, uh, especially Hurricane Rita came through Arkansas and spawned off a lot of tornadoes. Mm -hmm. So Arkansas hasn't had a direct hurricane hit, but we've had some (laughs) some tropical depressions and storms. Not for a while. You know, as you said, flora and fauna, you know, we cover reptiles, amphibians, birds, mammals. Um, but we also have centipedes, millipedes, slime molds, fungi, and <laughs> and I'm currently working with a guy who is apparently a specialist in every sort of parasitic worm that occurs in Arkansas. And so we're getting a variety of those, you know, to talk about things you don't want to know about every parasitic <laughs> worm that, you know, you could perhaps be infected with. Oh, great. So, great. Though many of them don't. <laughs> you know, infect humans. Slime molds. There's an entry on slime molds. Yes. Yes, there is. Uh, And so uh, tell us about who writes these entries. Everyone. You know, especially in the early days of the project, we were reaching out largely to university professors or people affiliated with county historical societies. But we maintain a list of entries needing authors on our website. 
people can go there. And there's a tab at the top of the main page that's uh, labeled Get Involved, and from there they can find the list of entries we need. And so we've had a lot of writers just happen upon us, and they email us out of the blue, say, hey, I'd be interested in writing this. And, you know, as long as they're capable of doing the research and doing the writing, we're happy to sign them up. And, and comfortable with the fact that the facts will be checked and right. uh, there's a rigorous fact-checking procedure. Well, a rigorous editorial process. I edit everything that comes in. Our staff historian looks at it. Uh, he sends it out to usually a specialist in the field to be reviewed. We might ask the author for revision. After the author turns in the revision, it gets fact-checked. It gets copy-edited. You know, the author signs off on it before it goes online. So we, we have an extensive editorial process that tries to ensure that uh, everything is as accurate as possible. And one of the advantages of being a website rather than printed resource is if we do find an error after the fact, we can go in and correct that. Or uh, people die, you update their People die, death dates. You know, tornadoes occur, new properties get added to the National Register. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very fluid, you know, Arkansas is a very dynamic state. There's a lot going on here. So, yeah, right. and the more we have, the more we have to keep track of. And this David Strickland, I'm talking to a guy, Lancaster, who's the uh, project manager of the Encyclopedia of Arkansas History and Culture. And that web address is encyclopediaofarkansas.net. People can access the encyclopedia and read these entries, but also check out your list, as you say, of entries we still need uh, writers for. Uh, the You mentioned the reliability of it, the fact-checking. Uh, the EOA, Encyclopedia of Arkansas, has become enormously uh, successful and used Let's talk about the, the usage stats, you might say, and then we'll talk about the reliability of it a bit more. Well, we regularly log, each month we log about 150,000 to 200,000 visits to the site. Individual people getting on. Right. And and that, that does uh, peak with the you know end of the semester as a lot of students are checking out the site for their final projects and whatnot. And we get visits from all over the globe. We've, we've logged over 230 countries. And I, and I have to specify that, you know, country in this, in this sense, you know, mm -hmm. includes uh, recognized territories, overseas departments. You know, there are only, I think, 200 United Nations. Yeah, 193. But, but right. we've had just about all of those. All except one. So, <laughs> who's the one holdout? Oh, I forget. One of the Bruneis. Okay. Not Brunei daughter Salam. Maybe the other one. We need to track them down. Right. I'm, yeah. But but we've we've gotten all seven continents, including Antarctica. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's great. That's great. But people, you mentioned school kids using this, but also uh, you, the EOA has been quoted in the uh, New York Times, the uh, Times of London. Right. Uh, people yeah. around the world have used it. And, and I think because it's reliable, they, it's accessible, it's free, but it's not made up. There's not a lot of, right. I mean, so mm -hmm. thing. But what, what other measures do you think uh, or, or whatever evidence do you think there is of uh, the success and the use of the or utility of the EOA? I, I remember reading an article in the Democrat Gazette about a, a county quorum court that looked up our entry on quorum courts 
they were just fact checking to see whether they had you know particular authority to to do this and hmm. so they they were citing the EOA entry on quorum courts you know before making this decision and actually there was a a court case related to the Carroll County has two county seats and there'd long been an assumption that the dividing line between those seats was the Kings River. Well, as our uh, fact checker at the time, a man named Steve Teske, was fact checking that county entry, he discovered that the uh, orig- original legislation, you know, was slightly different. It wasn't exactly the Kings River, and so when he reported this back to the author, it spun off into you know some legal wrangling in Carroll County uh, as to you know how county revenue should be divided up, and and so and so that was interesting. That's where our fact checking had a yeah. Definite effect on, you know, county policy. Yeah, yeah. So. Not just the people's understanding of the past, but their understanding of the mm-hmm. present. Yeah, yeah. The so last year we had a uh, over 1.8 million visitors. Uh, mm-hmm. Teachers and students use it all the time. It's used uh, by reporters and and all kinds of uh, uh, people all around the world. And this is the 10th anniversary today. We're celebrating that. Any thoughts about the significance of the project? You've been with it all along. It's it's almost hard to think about it within the project. You know, it's I I, I wish I could get a little bit of that outsider's perspective, but it it is it has grown quite a bit. You know, at one time I could keep everything that we had in my head. You know, and, <laughs> and now you know, I think sometimes, oh, we should have an entry on that. And we already do, you know. Oh, so, yeah. That's great. <laughs> so, so, so that happens sometimes. But what, what's been amazing is the fact that the more we grow, the more people will email us and say, well, you should have entry on this. Or why isn't this covered? And, you know, it's very significant stuff yeah. that people want covered. So it's, it just uh, kind of keeps snowballing. Yeah. I think six entries are, were added just this morning, so this, mm-hmm. it goes grows just about every week. Well, Guy Lancaster, congratulations on 10 years with the Encyclopedia of Arkansas History and Culture. It is a fantastic resource, and the Butler Center and Cows are proud to be the home of it. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you. The Encyclopedia of Arkansas, or EOA, debuted as a project of the Butler Center and Cows on May 2, 2006. Since then, this online resource has grown by leaps and bounds and continues to offer a wealth of information about our state. Tonight, we hope you will join us to celebrate the EOA's 10th anniversary at a reception in the Butler Center Galleries on the first floor of the Arkansas Studies Institute building on the Cal's main library campus. The party will begin at 5 p.m. with libations, light hors d'oeuvres, and cake. Then at 6 p.m., Head of the Butler Center, David Strickland, and editor of the EOA, Guy Lancaster, will make a few remarks about what's in store for the EOA. One of these announcements is that a fund named for the EOA's founding editor, Tom Dillard, has reached permanent endowment status. In honor of 10 great years, we'd like to double this fund by raising $10,000. If you'd like to help us meet this goal, we invite you to make a donation at the event or online at cals.org. Simply click Contribute, fill in the requested personal info, and when prompted, select Tom Dillard EOA Endowment from the list of options to designate your gift. We hope to see you tonight at 5 p.m. in Butler Center Galleries to celebrate 10 great years and many more to come for the Encyclopedia of Arkansas. This event is free and open to the public. 
This Month in Arkansas History On May 23, 1968, Sweet Home native Henry Dumas, the critically acclaimed author of poetry and fiction, was fatally shot for unknown reasons by a New York transit policeman. Dumas's family moved to Harlem when he was 10. His early life in the Deep South and the desolate conditions confronting black Southerners in that era are insightfully depicted in several of his writings. Dumas became active in the civil rights movement and served as assistant director of Upward Bound at Ohio's Hiram College. Eugene R. Redmond, a teacher, critic, and author at Southern Illinois University, championed his work and managed to get much of his unpublished work before the public. People. Places. Things. Ideas. Nouns. Arkansas is full of nouns. Some of them are strange and interesting. Some of them are just slightly out of the ordinary, but still very interesting. Together they are the tales of Bizarre Arkansas. Hi, this is Stuart Fuel with the Central Arkansas Library System, here to bring you a tale of Bizarre Arkansas. Before moving to Arkansas in 1938, Dr. John Richard Brinkley, who essentially bought his credentials at one of the day's finest diploma mills, made a name for himself with a series of highly profitable and mostly illegal business ventures. From a radio station he owned in Kansas, he sold prescriptions and snake oil cures and promoted a new operation he claimed would solve male virility issues, which involved transplanting goat testicles into his human patients. It was an innovation that might have been his crowning medical achievement, had he been a proper doctor and had the operation actually worked. on the run from the Kansas Medical Board and the Federal Radio Commission. Brinkley relocated to Del Rio, Texas and purchased a million watt radio station on the other side of the Mexican border to avoid further regulatory intervention. This was the famous XERA, which reportedly had such a strong signal that it could be heard locally via a person's metal dental work and as far away as Canada, but that required a radio. On the X, you could hear virtual unknowns, such as the Carter family and Gene Autry, and listen to various con artists selling everything from life insurance to autographed photos of Jesus Christ. Brinkley also began practicing medicine again while in Texas. When another doctor there started offering similar services at lower prices, Brinkley packed up and slithered to Arkansas, where he opened two hospitals one where he performed his operations, and another for rehabilitation, which now serves as a Carmelite monastery near East End. A year later, in 1939, he was exposed as a fraud and lost a number of civil suits that were filed against him. Even on his deathbed, he was reportedly working on a new con, studying to become a preacher. Just four years after arriving in Arkansas, John Brinkley died, bankrupt and disgraced, in 1942 at the age of 56. For Radio Cals, this has been a tale of bizarre Arkansas.
Arkansas Sounds will feature Charlie Rich Jr. and Sonny Burgess and the legendary Pacers on Friday, May 20th at 7 p.m. at the Ron Robinson Theater. Charlie Rich Jr. will perform a tribute to his Grammy Award-winning father and country music legend Charlie Rich. Charlie Rich is a native of Colt, Arkansas, who rose to fame before his son's birth and performed throughout his son's childhood and adult years. Charlie Rich Jr. is an acclaimed keyboardist in his own right who spent many years on tour performing with his father. In the same show, Sonny Burgess and the legendary Pacers will present their high-energy, signature rock music. These artists have played boogie-woogie music in dance halls and bars from Arkansas to Europe to Australia since the 1950s and are still going strong. That's Friday, May 20th at 7 p.m. at the Ron Robinson Theater. Tickets are $20. The doors to the theater will open at 6 p.m. Learn more and buy tickets at ArkansasSounds.org. It's time for Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, a regular feature on Radio Cows. That's Rex Nelson, who is head of corporate communications for Simmons Bank and who writes the food blog Southern Fried. And Paul Austin, who is executive director of the Arkansas Humanities Council, talking about Arkansas food, festivals, and folks. Well, we have had some interesting travels lately, Paul, and you found one of your favorite places in some place I wouldn't have guessed, which was downtown Pocahontas. Well, it's exactly right. I, uh, Jan and I went to the Friends of the Library at Imboden, Pancake Breakfast. Imboden, it came up early in the got segment. here real early, yeah. Uh, and this is their annual fundraiser. My mother happens to be a part of that uh, Friends of the Library. So we decided uh, things were crowded at the house at Imboden, so we decided to spend the night in Pocahontas. And we decided that because my cousin said, Paul, we stayed at this luxurious guest house in Pocahontas. And, of course, my first comment was, Pocahontas? You're kidding me. <laughs> exactly. Well, there's this place called Les Meister Guest House that is luxurious. Now, Rex, mm. I will admit to using hyperbole. That, that is a part of my— Especially when it comes to M. Bowden or the surrounding area. Exactly. But let me just say what—so here's what you had in, this, in our suite, which was the cheapest one there. We had a, a knob that didn't just turn heat on and off. It controlled the temperature of the tile floor in the bathroom. Oh, my goodness. This is in Pocahontas. And the old boy who owns it uh, checked us in uh, because we'd made the reservation that day. He pulls up in a Tesla. And I thought, where am I? This cannot be Pocahontas, Arkansas. Yeah, wouldn't have expected to see a Tesla in downtown no. Pocahontas. And the, in the parking lot of this little, it has five suites. Uh-huh. It had two, not one, but two electric car charging ports. Now, this is right off the square? Right off the square. Okay. And we walked across the street that evening. Um, you do it all online, by the way, unless mm-hmm. you do it the day of. Um, so there's no key. There's no lobby. You just get a code to get into your little suite. And... So we got in that evening, walked across the street to a nice little Italian restaurant, which is in. So I, we walked in and I said, is this King's department store? She said, well, yes, that's old. But when I was a kid, that was the the exclusive men's clothing and women's, too. Oh, OK. King's, King's department mm-hmm. store right there on the corner in the square. Now We're the elite of northeast Arkansas. The elite of Poco, Randolph yeah. County would yeah. go, Yeah. Or as we called it, Imboden, Pokey. <laughs> Where are you going for supper? Pokey. We're going to go over to Pokey. <laughs> so, but uh, spent the night there. And, you know, I guess when you're 
close to those kind of communities, you don't see things. But we were walking around that night. Everything was closed then. But Pocahontas has a wonderful square. Rich history. There. Rich history. Vibrant. The buildings are full of stuff. History, yeah. There's a museum there. There's an art gallery. Futural's drugstore is the evidently the oldest continuing operating drugstore in Arkansas. Still has a soda mm-hmm. fountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in do the middle. still do the dinner theater there? Still do the dinner theater there. In fact, actually, it's moving off the square. They're building a brand new building. Oh, wow. Right out by uh, Black River Tech. Um and then in the middle is this historic courthouse. It's a gorgeous old courthouse. And you're 10 miles from the both the Rice House and the Looney Tavern, which are arguably the oldest buildings in Arkansas. I guess uh, Wolf House would argue and Bill mm-hmm. Wortham would argue. But, you know, these are, these are old Davisonville-era mm-hmm. dwellings. And you're 12 miles from uh, Dalton, and you can have lunch at the Dalton store. So Pocahontas has become like a place to go and do things. Who yeah. knew? In yeah. fact, the two blocks away from us is a place called the Bluebird Tea House. And it's not just iced tea, but it's an English tea house with sandwiches and all kinds of t- Earl Grey and all kinds of teas in Pocahontas. Who who knew? It's, oh, wow. It's a really a, a wonderful destination. Well, you know, if you like the bed and breakfast scene, obviously Eureka Springs, Hot Springs, both have some of the best bed and breakfast inns uh, in this part of the country. But there are some other places where you can find guest house or bed and breakfast that you wouldn't typically guess. Pocahontas, I don't think people would typically guess. Uh, you and I have both stayed in the guest quarters down in El Dorado with what yeah. Richard Mason has done there. They're, they're yes. wonderful, Paul. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. I've stayed multiple times yeah. there. You've got some separate houses that have been done. Right. And then you've got upstairs of downtown buildings yeah. that have also been done as part of that complex. I think, uh, Rex, you and I had an adventure. Jan was with us. And we uh, stayed in in one of the houses. Mm-hmm. I think they maybe call it the Mason yes, yes, house uh-huh. or something. Right, Just right. Very nice. And 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 El Dorado's got that same sort of. Well, it's a bigger deal than Pocahontas, but a downtown square that's multiple blocks of vibrant stuff, mm-hmm. shops and art galleries and restaurants and. You would you would never think of that sort of thing in El Dorado. Yeah, other places you might not necessarily think of for a great bed and breakfast, but as you know, Paul, because you've heard me talk about it for years, but the Edwardian Inn in Helena, absolutely one of my favorite yeah. places to stay yeah. anywhere in this part of the country. Yeah, it really is nice. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. Yeah, great. There's old... a nice one in Mountain View uh-huh. right there on the square. That's uh-huh. nice. There, can... there he is. Yeah. Uh, uh, my hometown, since you got the M. Bowden Inn, we'll get Arkadelphia in. But, of course, you've got the Henderson House. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Which was built by Captain Henderson. Captain he Henderson, was not yeah. a military captain. He was a steamboat captain yeah. at one time. <laughs> but uh, the Captain Henderson House, who Henderson State University uh, was named for back when it was still a Methodist school. But it was redone actually by the state using Natural and Cultural Resources Council funds and is operated by Henderson. But, again, what a beautiful old yeah. home. We yeah. we knew it as the Stone House because Mr. Stone, who ran Elkhorn Bank and Trust, lived there, uh, lived there when I was yeah. a child. And we called it the Stone House. But they went back to the original name, the Henderson House, when they turned it into a bed and breakfast. But that is another one I can highly yeah. recommend. Yeah, that is. That, that's a lot. I, I believe Henderson now... It's sort of their guest house, too, mm-hmm. if you're a guest at the university. My wife had that. It is. But anybody can go online or call and, and reserve a room. Well, or you could stay at the uh, 
Carnal Hall on the campus of uh, U of A. Which was a women's dorm at one time. And now it's a wonderful bed and breakfast. Yeah, that's another one. classrooms and a restaurant and everything. That's another one we use, Natural and Cultural Resources Council for Carnal Hall. And it's got a wonderful restaurant in it called Ellis, which is right. which is quite good. Now, don't try to do it during football season. Those you're you're going to have to make your reservations now. Oh, no, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Bad. But if you go in the middle of the week, it's yeah. a it's a nice getaway right and on campus. You can walk to uh, Dixon Street from there. It's a block mm-hmm. away, so a good place to go. You're listening to Chewing the Fat with Rex Nelson and Paul Austin on Radio Cows. And you and I have both taken advantage recently of some of our state park lodges. Yeah. yeah. And I will tip my hats to the people at the uh, Arkansas Department of Parks and Tourism because they do operate with what in my mind is the best system of state parks in the country. You know, Wilhelmina uh, had been closed for several years. Their first contractor basically kind of went under, and then was, the, the construction stopped, and they went and got another contractor. So the thing came in over budget, two years late. But let me tell you, it was worth it, Paul. On, on Easter weekend, my wife and youngest son had gone down to Texas to visit my oldest son and left me as a bachelor for the weekend. So uh, I got out and just decided I'd explore over that way in West Arkansas and uh, just had a wonderful time at Wilhelmina. But you had never stayed at Magazine and just recently did. Just recently did that. Two highest peaks in Arkansas, by the way. Magazine's one and Rich Mountain's number two where Wilhelmina is. Forget how high they are. I mean, you're, Mm -hmm. I think Mount Magazine is 28 plus, 2,800 plus feet, I think. And the highest point between the Appalachians and the Rocky Mountains, I believe. Well, and, and you really realize that I certainly did on Rich Mountain. Now, you went a little later to Magazine, but still, in spring, you really realize it because it'll be full-blown spring down on the bottom of the yep. mountain, and it'll feel like winter when you get back yep. on top. Things are blooming We much were at lighter. Magazine yeah. two weekends ago, and the 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 uh, trees at the top were bare, completely yeah, bare. Yeah, weren't out, were they? Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. We had gone to... Uh, take the train ride from Van Buren to Winslow and back. That was a Christmas present from That's Josh and Candace. I've never done. Well, it's too. a lot of fun. Yeah, I've heard that. And it's, uh, I was reminded how relaxing a train ride can be. Now, this isn't one of the bullet trains in Japan. <laughs> exactly. This thing rocks a little. But we got the dome, paid extra to sit up in the dome. You get a box lunch and, and uh, there's sodas and stuff, snacks. Uh, but it's... It was a lot of fun. Just first of all, you saw this gorgeous scenery, but just to sit there and relax. Nobody's driving. You could just sit and talk, and and of course you're seeing a part of the country that you hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. Now sometimes you'd get you could see the, the interstate 540 that was there, but we I remember we passed by a place that uh, looked like an old junkyard, looked like an old community junkyard, just mm-hmm. piled up with all kinds of junk sort of on a little ditch that ran down by the tracks. And there was old rusted cars and washing machines. And I thought, now, 500 years from now, an archaeologist is going <laughs> to dig that site up, and they're going to say, well, clearly this is a very wealthy family because they've got nine cars here. Must have had a lot of kids. They had 10 <laughs> di- uh, washing machines. They're never going to realize that it was some god-awful mess out. It was a dump. <laughs> it yeah. was a dump. Yeah. But we, so we get back and then drove to Mount Magazine. Mm-hmm. And we got there late, uh, before dark, thank goodness. We drove through Paris. 
I don't remember the last time Great I was impressed. Beautiful. One town. of my best friends is the superintendent of schools there. Rex, we drove through, and they were having prom that evening on the square. All the uh, kids were there with their dates up. taking uh-huh. their pictures on the square. Yeah. I mean, it was April in Paris. It yeah. was really a, a gorgeous. Then we drove up the mountain. and Big, about beautiful half, Catholic church there, too. Did you church, see yeah, it from saw the outside? That, yeah. yeah. And you, you could had tell all it, the German Catholics settled in that At one time, area. Paris yeah. was really vibrant. I mean, things look pretty good now. Coal mining still, country at one time. A lot of buildings around the square that mm-hmm. you could tell at one one time were commercially viable. Mm-hmm. We got about halfway up Mount Magazine, and all of a sudden we're in the clouds and couldn't see five feet in front of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, just blind. And you I, and I'd never been there, so I didn't know where I was going. And you'd see the sign literally when you got to it, and we'd stop. And I was waiting on somebody to run into me. But we finally checked into this place, and the wind was just howling up there. I thought, where are we? Is this Switzerland? <laughs> but we get into our room, beautiful room on the third floor with a beautiful view, except we could see about five feet. Yeah, because of the fog. The clouds completely engulfed and didn't clear away till the next morning to like 10 minutes before checkout time. Wow. Well, but it was a gorgeous view, though. When I checked out of Wilhelmina on Easter morning, you know, one of the old original lodge that was built up there by the owners of the Kansas City Southern Railroad yeah. to kind of try to get people to uh, ride the railroad. Uh, they would refer to it as the castle in the sky or the castle in the clouds. And sure enough, on Sunday morning, now Saturday afternoon was beautiful, and I had a great view from my room, but on Sunday morning, it was in the clouds and the fog. This is Easter morning. It was 42 degrees when I turned on my car, according to my, my car, in the parking lot with a very heavy wind. So the wind chill had to be in the 20s because yeah. I ran to the car. Just to the bottom of the mountain, it was sunny and 60 degrees <laughs> at the bottom of the mountain. Yeah, 18 degrees difference. And well, the difference between sunny skies and being in that cloud I was looking as at. As the no. guy at, oh, uh, at Mount Magazine, we checked in, he said, well, Mount Magazine has its own climate. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as down in the valley. Oh, no. Those old oak trees on both Rich Mountain and Wilhelmina look like they've taken a beating. They look like they've taken a beating from the wind. And yeah. uh, the lady at the Visitor Center magazine said, well, I said, I noticed watch out for bears. She said, yeah, people see a bear occasionally. She said, the danger are deer. Oh, yeah. Just running into cars, committing suicide every day and, mm-hmm. and multiple wrecks. And I thought, you know, with this way the clouds or the fog was when we got there, we would have no way we would have stopped for a deer. Yeah. It was, uh, and it's a very impressive mountain. So we came back. We didn't come back through Paris. We went the other side. Other down the other highway side. Highway 10. Came back highway 10. Highway 10 I did all the last way. time I stayed it's there. It's a beautiful drive. Oh, it's a great drive. I, yeah. I, uh, as you know, my son Take is. Take it all the way back to Perry and then come back to Little Rock to Perryville. Did it yeah. all the way. Mm-hmm. A lot of chicken houses in that part of oh, the yeah. Though. Oh, a yeah. A lot of. Could have told you that. Yeah. And you could see them glinting from the. From the view at uh, at Mount Magazine, but yeah, I was blown away. And the lodge is really nice, first big, class, yeah. Big rooms and the restaurant is a first class restaurant. They even have a bar, Rex. Mm-hmm. I was well, that's just, wine country, of course. They got to serve some yeah. Arkansas wine up there. And you know, I believe the Humanities Council helped the old boy that's got the Cowie Wine Museum. You've been to the museum, there, yes, haven't I you? Have, yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. It's a very Bob interesting. Cowie. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So uh, it, that's a part of the country you and I have talked that, particularly western Arkansas, that I just haven't hung around much. But mm-hmm. I was really impressed with Mount Magazine. Got, yeah. got to go back uh, when we got a better view. But that the it was dramatic. So I'm standing on the balcony at like 20 till 11 Sunday morning. And I heard the, the guy said, you know, it'll, it 
this has nothing to do with this front coming in Oklahoma. This, this is just is what happens. Mount here. Magazine weather, yeah. And it'll clear off in a second. And I mean, you remember that scene in The Longest Day when the German is in the pillbox on the beach at Normandy and he can't see and the fog and he can't see. Then all of a sudden the fog clears and it's full of ships and he says, the invasion. Yeah. Well, that's what happened here. I'm looking, I can't see, and all of a sudden it just clears up and there's the, you know, the lake that's down there and far hills and it was just a fantastic place to stay. You know, when I was working in the governor's office for Governor Huckabee, we had a Southern Governors Association meeting up at the homestead in the mountains of southwestern Virginia. Yeah. And um, they have their own landing strip up there on top of the mountain, much like Petty Jean has the old Winthrop Rockefeller landing strip, which is now part of the state park there, but had their own landing strip. So we flew right on top of the mountain in the state king air. Well, apparently... Every other southern governor except our pilots <laughs> got the message that there were problems occasionally with fog and you really ought to take your plane down to another airport at the bottom of the mountain just so there wasn't any problems. Well, it got the day to leave, and, of course, everybody else had taken their plane down. Not our pilots, however. So uh, Governor Huckabee's needing to get back to Arkansas, and uh, we asked the guy. He said... Uh, how long does it take this fog to burn off? And he said, oh, it's here for five or six days sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the governor uh, just throws a fit. And so uh, uh, our, our legal counsel at the time, Bud Cummins, who would go on to become, of course, U.S. attorney for a time for the Eastern District of Arkansas, he said, don't worry, governor, I've got contacts. Apparently he knew somebody that was in the uh, in the chartered plane business. And and the governor made the mistake of saying, all right, do whatever you need to do to get me back to Little Rock. Well, Bud comes back smiling, true story, smiling and says, it's all taken care of. This jet's coming out of Atlanta, but it's very fast. We just need to drive down. It'll be here before you know it uh, to this airport at the bottom of the mountain. So we drove down, and it was a wonderful private plane. I uh, had somebody that said, uh, you know, would you like iced tea or lemonade? I've got some box lunches for you. I thought, well, how nice is this? Well, the next day, my phone rings, and it's the <laughs> chief of staff. And um, uh, <laughs> so I went back, and uh, I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, who who authorized that? And I said, well, the governor said do whatever it takes to get me back. And <laughs> Bud handled it. And she said, well, you've just eaten up the entire travel budget for the entire governor's <laughs> office for the rest of the year. <laughs> but it was a nice flight. A nice nobody ride, nobody else could yeah. go anywhere the rest of the year on the entire staff. But then, well, uh, they should have taken a train back. Yeah, yeah. In the old days, you could have done that. A- absolutely. You've been listening to Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, a regular feature on Radio Cows with Rex Nelson and Paul Austin. Paintings and prints created by Arkansas artist Carmen Alexandria will be featured at Second Friday Art Night at Butler Center Galleries on Friday, May 13th from 5 to 8 p.m. Allie is a native of Little Rock who was educated at Hendricks College and has taught in Argentina. She is a painter and printmaker who views making art as a way of organizing random data. She seeks to reconfigure this data in order to celebrate the observed patterns created within the viewer's mind. Her work is articulate, tight, and richly colored. Collectors remark about the unique perspective she brings to contemporary still life. Her work is new to Butler Center Galleries and will be available for sale at the event on May 6th and onward. Also at Second Friday Art Night this month, 
DJ Harlem James will perform electronic remix music in the galleries. Second Friday Art Night is a monthly opportunity to visit downtown Little Rock's galleries, museums, and businesses for an after-hours gallery walk. Admission to Butler Center Galleries is free and open to the public. That's Friday, May 13th from 5 to 8 p.m. For more information, visit butlercenter.org art. This is KABF in Little Rock, 88.3, the voice of the people in central Arkansas. Now let's celebrate Arkansas jazz musician and singer Bob Durow. Robert Durow is a composer, lyricist, and musician best known for his jazz compositions and 1970s schoolhouse rock shorts on ABC Saturday Morning Television. Born on December 12, 1923, in Cherry Hill, Arkansas, the oldest of four children, Durow attended elementary schools in Arkansas and graduated from high school in Plainview, Texas, where the family moved in 1934. The Plainview High School bandmaster inspired Durow musically and gave him free lessons in harmony and the clarinet to complement his previous training in violin, piano, and singing. Durow was drafted into the U.S. Army in February 1943. While in a military special services band, Durow wrote many arrangements and played in various musical groups. Durow returned to school after his discharge and earned a Bachelor of Music degree from North Texas State Teachers College, now the University of North Texas, in 1949. He moved to New York City after graduation and supported himself as a piano player. In 1952, he met boxing champion Sugar Ray Robinson, who was learning a tap dance routine at the Henry Lee Tang Dance School. The retired boxer hired Durow to be his musical director for his new career in show business, and they toured Canada and the United States, with Durow either at the piano or conducting big bands for Robinson's act. They went to Paris, France, and Durow remained after Robinson decided to return to the boxing ring. During his stay in Paris, he recorded several songs with singer Blossom Deary. In 1955, he returned to the United States and moved to Los Angeles, California, where he played various gigs, including a job between sets by comedian Lenny Bruce. Durow's first song to be recorded was Devil May Care, written with Terrell Kirk. It was recorded in 1953 by the Les Elgart Band. His first full-length album, also titled Devil May Care, was a jazz album issued by Bethlehem Records in 1956. Now let's listen to Bob DeRoe with the title track from his 1956 debut album, Devil May Care. No cares for me, I'm happy as I can be. I've learned to love and to live, Devil May Care. No blues are woes, whatever comes later goes. That's how I take and I give, the devil may care. The album contained a version of Yardbird Suite, with lyrics by DeRoe over the famous Charlie Parker song. Trumpeter Miles Davis liked the album so much, when Columbia asked Davis to record a Christmas song in 1962, Davis turned to DeRoe for lyrics and singing duties. The result was a downbeat tune called Blue Christmas, released on Columbia's Jingle Bell Jazz compilation. During that session, DeRoe recorded another song for Davis, Nothing Like You, which appeared a few years later at the end of his Sorcerer album, making DeRoe one of the few musicians with a vocal performance on a Miles Davis record. Let's skip forward to 1966 and hear Bob's song, Baby You Should Know It. 
There's no need to tell you. Now don't make me sell you. You know good and well. You're the one I idolize. I'm going to be true now. There's nothing in view now. Except me and you. Can't you read that in my eyes? Though I will never shout it, I know this about it. I can't do without it. Don't you ever doubt it, baby, baby, baby. You should know it. DeRoe has recorded and released more than 15 solo albums and has been featured on more than 20 albums by different artists, including Miles Davis and Blossom Deary. In 1971, DeRoe was commissioned by a New York advertising company to set the multiplication tables to music to make learning numbers easier. He wrote and recorded 11 songs for the project, including a commercial album entitled Multiplication Rock, which was issued by Capitol Records in 1973. Three is a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic number. Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity You get three as a magic number The past and the present and the future Faith and hope and charity The heart and the brain and the body Give you three as a magic number The advertising executives considered ideas for tie-ins with the album, settling finally on an animated adaptation. The idea was pitched to television network ABC, which at the time was looking for more kid-friendly materials for the Saturday morning schedule. The network's head of children's programming approved the three-minute skits. The first four segments of Schoolhouse Rock premiered on ABC in 1973. Following Multiplication Rock came Grammar Rock, which featured songs such as Lolly 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 Get Your Adverbs Here, History Rock, and Science Rock. DeRoe wrote 22 of the 52 songs for the series, including the series theme song. He served as musical director for the series, which ran on ABC's Saturday morning lineup from 1973 to 1985. The network began rerunning the series in 1993. DeRoe continues to produce jazz albums and perform around the world. For more information on Bob DeRoe, please visit the Encyclopedia of Arkansas at Encyclopedia of Arkansas. Net. This month in Arkansas history. On May 1st, 1886, the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs opened its doors to the public. The massive 18-inch thick stones used for the body of the hotel were made of limestone hand-carved from a quarry on the White River near Beaver, Arkansas. After several uses and renovations throughout its history, the hotel remains open. The newly added New Moon Spa reflects the original purpose of the hotel as a destination for relaxation and healing. The Crescent Hotel is a member of the National Trust Historic Hotels of America and has been featured on the Discovery Channel for its Victorian beauty and many reported ghost sightings. Started by the pending nonprofit Just Us, Books and Bagels is a cultural community strengthening and building event. During their sessions, they provide free breakfast, books for giveaway, children's reading time, and workshops. In partnership with the Children's Library and Learning Center, this program is a regular series during which individuals participate in multi-generational conversations around different current issues or topics of concern to our society. Topics so far have included community organizing, cultural tolerance, and most recently, 
feminism, misogyny, and sexism. The team of Just Us is also the core leadership of the educational program Global Kids Arkansas, which sends youth from underserved communities overseas for social services projects. Books and bagels will also eventually serve as a vetting process for that program. Introducing this session, you hear Sean West, better known as the homegrown Little Rock singer, Sean Fresh. A website is in development to host information about the program. If you would like to be placed on the mailing list, please contact Epiphany Morrow at justgcar at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T, G like golf, K like kilo, A-R at gmail.com. Or call 646-373-4471. Moderator Ursula Khan continues discussion around masculinity and gender stereotypes during our conversation about misogyny during Books and Bagels. So, so I see that Mr. Simpson and Amber both are talking about misogyny, right? Fear and hatred of women, as well as toxic masculinity, which I know you as a counselor know a lot about. Toxic masculinity is a concept that delineates how men how the parameters of masculinity are about yay big. Anything outside of that isn't right. Like, for example, you're, you'll hear a lot of young men on college campuses, which is a good segue for the next question. A lot of young men on, men on college campuses and high schools will, you know, um, be sitting with their group of male friends, right, in a homosocial, same-sex social group, in a homosocial group, and they'll be talking and playing, and you'll hear one kid say something like, oh, I was kind of thinking about buying the, uh, I don't know, uh, the, the rose gold iPhone, but that's gay. I can't do that, right? Because somehow the color of a phone will delineate, express, explain your own masculinity as a young man. Or, oh, I really wanted to buy a shirt that had flowers on it, but girls do that. I can't do that. So toxic masculinity, I believe, Mr. Simpson, is kind of what you were saying in much more layman's terms. Toxic masculinity can really play a role in the way that men see themselves never being vulnerable, right? Constantly having to be the provider. I have to provide for my woman financially, materially, and I can't be vulnerable, open up, right? So speaking of college campuses, what are some misogynistic and sexist actions that you see on campus that often get trivialized or overlooked by the students? Um, so I think the microaggressions you were just speaking of, that's interesting, and that's probably the one that I would think is microaggression. Uh, you like me to define stuff, and I'm going to have to work on this. I like the challenge, though. So thank you. Uh, microaggressions are things that we do that are relatively small. I mean, they, they seem small, but they have a big impact. So what she just said was, um, that's gay, right? That color, if you pick this color, that's, that's gay. That's a microaggression in that um, it's offensive in some level, but it's, it's small enough to be overlooked, which is what you just asked about. Is like, what are things that we do that you know, are overlooked? If someone wears a certain color, then um, is that, is that girl-like? Or, you know, yeah, so in, they have different terms. You're being a little B if you show vulnerability, right? Um, and that is, yeah, stop acting like a, yep. Um, those things, these words. And these are microaggressions that essentially are associated, and I actually did have a conversation not too long ago with my students about the fact that 
what you're saying is that this person is expressing themselves, this young man is opening up, or he is showing vulnerability, and that you're associating with a woman. And he does not want to be a woman. And so what we've done now is we've said, if you open up and you tell me how you feel, you are like a woman. And so therefore, do not tell me how you feel if you do not want to be like a woman. Does that make sense? And so then there's a shutdown. And so what our society does, what we've done across, I mean, across the nation, what we do is we say emotions are for girls, right? And strength and, and no tears are for boys. And so essentially, this is how you must behave. Boys don't cry, exactly. Um, and this is how you must behave. When we do that, we are taking, we're draining, in my opinion, the intimacy out of our relationships. Because all of our life, we build relationships. And if I can't be honest with you about how I feel, if I cannot cry in front of you, if I cannot release or just open up or just say essentially what may not be politically correct, but it's definitely how I feel, if I can't do that in a safe place, process that with someone, then I'm going to hold that in and I'm going to lash out in other ways. You see what I'm saying? I'm going to do, do other things. And I think it's very interesting what you were saying because what we do is we create all these hurt people hurt people. And so microaggressions are the result, in my opinion, of pain that has never really been dealt with. And then so we inflict pain on someone else and then they now are hurting. And if they don't deal with it properly, they inflict pain on someone else and the cycle continues. And I think that it's interesting that we are, for example, we can rank, we like, we'll, you know, like pass jabs at each other and things like that. But it's hard for us to give a compliment and just like if our practice were compliments versus sarcasm, um, that's difficult. Sincere, right, sincere compliments. Um, because it's just not what always happens. But something that small, so like we have a microaggression and I guess that would be like a micro compliment of some sort. <laughs> I guess that's what that is. It's like it just becomes, right. And so you begin to reverse that, that culture. So yeah, I agree with you that the microaggressions are very common, very, people don't think about them. So so, so now we're discussing concepts of, that not only define women, right, but that also define and explain men. Because you can't understand things like misogyny if it's a singular gender, there have to be two. Looking at toxic masculinity, right, the parameters of masculinity are very small. Looking at microaggressions, small things that people say or do that degrade you, that show you prejudice of some sort, right? Not a, not a macroaggression, it's not like... A macroaggression is like, for example, like a Klansman coming and burning a cross in your yard. That's a huge, that's a big overt, you know, hey, I hate you in case you didn't know. A microaggression is something like, oh my God, you're so pretty for a dark skinned girl. No, that's not, that's not how you explain anything, right? That would be a microaggression. Big and, yeah, microaggression, big and small, right? There's another concept of how men are so heteronormative, right? Heterosexual in the culture. Heteronormative, cisgendered, the gender that you are is also the sex that you are, male and male. Cisgendered, heteronormative men, I was just reading on a blog recently, are taught to hold everything in for so long that when they finally fall in love with a woman and express themselves in a completely human manner and in the biggest way possible, they think, oh, she's the one and she's this pedestal. When in reality, all of their human relationships, whether homosocial or heterosocial, should be the same way. Young men's relationship with their fathers, with their mothers, siblings, um, coworkers, colleagues, friends, schoolmates, 
should be very full and expressive, but they're not. So when men fall in love, there's like a huge, oh my God, she's the one. No, dude, all of your relationships should have been this enriching. And so I'm gonna turn the mic over to anyone in the audience who wants to respond to this concept. Um, how do you feel as if you as a young man or as a young woman have experienced this, have seen people in your lives that are this way? Um, any ideas on how to combat it? Anything you want to respond to in this regard? Any volunteers? I think that um, as far as in the black community, we, we don't, we, I think we overlook the fact that 50% of, uh, that was, and this might be an old stat of, of um, black families end up in divorce. And so when you grow up without a father, then a lot of the, um, the black kids in the community end up being raised by their mother. Father's Day is, is a prime example. If you go on social media, you'll see in the black community so many women saying, I am the father. I'm the father and I'm the mother. Ted Cruz, uh, what's his, uh, Cruz, what's his, um, the big buff guy? Cruz, his, Ted Cruz, he, he, got, he got blasted for saying about being a, a father, you know, that, that I am the father, that the mother plays this role, um, father plays this role. And I think the problem is, is that what a lot of people view as weakness are really strength, right? Like, what's my wife? She's not here right now, good. Um, so earlier, we were, we were driving here today, and, and we were listening to K-Love, and, you know, I'm thinking about, oh, I'm, I'm running late, I need to get some bagels, do we have juice, which we don't. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of things on my mind, and there's a commercial going on, and it's uh, just a woman telling her story. And I look over to the right, and she's crying. You see, in our society, they would say, oh, you're being a punk, you know what I'm saying, toughen up. But what, what we don't realize is that that is a strength, that for you to have so much compassion and for you to be so aware and in tune with the hum humanity of the world, then there is a book that we read at church called His Brain, Her Brain. Men are wired differently. We're not, when, when you give us a problem, my wife comes home and she says something about the daycare, and she's like, oh, you know, Mr. So-and-so said this to me, or blah, 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 you know, the kids, blah, blah, blah. I automatically go into problem solving. That's the first thing. It's, 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 I go into, okay, so that means, one, somebody's got to get beat up, you know, to, or, or, or I can go and talk to somebody. When all she really wanted, like Dr. Charles said, is just for you to listen. But I feel like when we don't have a father and a mother in the black community to see that, then, then we're, we're left up to, to watching what society say is, you know, what it's going to be. You know, oh, you're, 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 when I grew up, 8-Ball and MJG raised me. It was the rap music that raised me. And, and not only that, not saying, oh, rap music, well, you know, because rap music made me strong. You know, it made me feel like, oh, I can do whatever I want to. It was an imagination. But me listening to this is what a man does and this is what a woman does, that's what, that's what it was. And I, I feel like the lack of a father or the lack of a father and a mother, and only in the black community I say a lack of a father is because so many of the fathers are absent. Or even if they are there, they're working two jobs. My dad worked two full-time jobs, you know, and, and he was not well-educated. So he couldn't really put in 
a lot into me other than hard work. That's what a man does. Wakes up, go to work, you know, make sure you got good shoes. And I, I feel like if we can get to the root of seeing what a family is, and I feel like in today's society, I think we don't have a standard. And I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know if it's like, oh, we want to say that you're, you know, uh, a feminist or you're misogynistic, but I still feel like men and women have a role. And it's not because, and I, but I think the where it gets blurred is when we view a woman's role, we view it as a weakness as opposed to viewing it as two strength. You know, my sons can say, hey, my dad is this, my mom is, has compassion, you know, and these are the strengths in a relationship. You've been listening to a portion of a program called Bagels and Books, which was presented by the group Just Us in March of 2016 at the Hillary Rodham Clinton Children's Library and Learning Center. The sessions provide free breakfast, books, children's reading time, and workshops. We'll be presenting more of the March program in future episodes of Radio Cows. For more information about Bagels and Books, check out the online calendar on the Children's Library website. Get free music using your library card. With Cal's free music service, Freegal, you can download up to five songs per week and sync them with your iTunes account. Freegal apps are available, but no additional software is needed to use the service. Choose from millions of songs and artists in many genres from today's greatest hits to favorites from times gone by, and then listen on your computer, phone, or other device. Go to cows.org and click on the Digital Music Library to start downloading your free music. Dave Wallace was born in 1923 and grew up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, like the majority of his family before him. Looking through his papers available at the Butler Center, you can learn about his service as a World War II Army photographer, his work in advertising, his time as mayor, and his love of all things aviation. Wallace started writing at an early age and authored several Arkansas history books. Today, we're going to listen to a short story he wrote for high school English class. Hitchhiker's Holiday, or Where Was Wallace Wearily Wobbling? The first guy that says a hitchhiker's life is a bed of roses, I'll up and bust him one. For I, too, have been an inglorious, misadventurous knight of the road. My friend and I started out for Mississippi Friday by skipping afternoon classes. Special memo to Mr. Dial. If this falls into your clutches, fella, ignore that slight typographical error. By the way, notice the words started out. These are very misleading, as we never got where we were going. Friday night was just a long train ride to Memphis, and Saturday morning we started out bright and bleary-eyed to hitchhike to Cleveland, Mississippi. We got the ride only to be stranded in the middle of nowhere. Napoleon had his Waterloo. Wallace and company had their Bobo Junction. Ah, Bobo, you two-structure metropolis stuck in the middle of a cotton patch. Your business life reminds me of an old southern field hand with a bad case of spring fever 
and I'll wager you are the biggest little wide spot on any highway in any state. The only thing that moves in Bobo is the cars that whiz through at 90 miles per. But at long last, the car did stop, and we got a ride back to Memphis. By this time, we were working both sides of the highway in desperation. When the guy stopped, we were more than glad to go back to Memphis. In Memphis, we dropped in on my friend's good old Uncle Fred, or maybe I should say poor old Uncle Fred, for he had no less than 12 relatives under his roof by Sunday. Suspecting good Uncle Fred of contemplating arson or murder, I retreated to my own uncle's home. After spending the night, I learned that one of my cousins had the measles, and there was a nasty rumor of quarantining the place. See how smart my uncle is. No 12 relatives under his roof. But I took no chances on whether this was on the level or not, so I beat it. By now, there rose visions of Little Red Schoolhouse in the middle of Arkansas who were offering nine weeks' tests at that moment. Also, at this stage, a very, very fine weekend was making a very, very fine wreck out of a not-so-very-very-fine eye, and some ungodly little demons were installing a boiler in the innermost portions of my cranium. So without further ado, Wallace and company limped home. You just heard a short story written by Pine Bluff resident Dave Wallace while he was in high school. To learn more about Wallace, visit the Butler Center to see his personal papers. You're listening to Radio Cows on KBF 88.3 FM, Little Rock. Freeman McKendra has been a teacher and worked with the Peace Corps, the VISTA program, and the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. He has been active in community development throughout his career. He is a native of Union Chapel in Conway County. In 2008, Jawan Johnson interviewed him for a Butler Center project on race relations in Arkansas. McKendra spent many years working internationally, initially with the Peace Corps in Pakistan. Here he describes some of the early influences his travel had on his worldview. When it was announced that there will be Peace Corps, you could sign up and they'd send you, you know, to developing countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I signed up. And I, my first choice was to either go to South America, Spanish-speaking country, or to Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I went through training. They selected me, went through training, and they sent me to Pakistan. Okay. Uh, which was good. A really good experience. I really enjoyed that. That was a good. Uh, that really was a good, yeah. uh, good fit for me at that time. How did it change your worldview? Well, it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did change my worldview in the sense that. Uh, Especially you run into somebody who, because uh, you know, I mean, if, you, if you've been in this country all your life, believe, uh, you kind of halfway believe, whether you, anybody would admit it or not, that this is the center of the universe, yes, and we're the best of everything, we know everything, we, we, it, you, whatever you start out, got to start out with us, and anything mm-hmm. else is going to And then you find, you get there, and you, you run into somebody who can discuss a civilization that's 5,000 years old. Yes. 
with with confidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you look at uh, agriculture production on the same land mm -hmm. for the last three thousand years, and it's more fertile now than it than it was when they, when they got started. You start, you know, you start almost scratching your ears. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute, something ain't quite. And you find people that just as strong in their beliefs about who they are and mm -hmm. what they do and how they do things and the value of what they do mm -hmm. is anything else. So then you have to start really trying to revisit who you are and what do you do and yeah. Yeah, how do you, you know, the, the thing that I guess it made me much more of a, a, a biblical scholar, because in, in, in Pakistan it was at that time like 99.5% of people Muslim. Mm -hmm. And uh, studying the Quran was a serious business, and they knew the Quran. Mm -hmm. But since I'm from the United States, and say, you're a Christian country, you're mm -hmm. supposed to know the Bible. Mm -hmm. People would come up to you out the clear blue and ask you a question about the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I guess the look on my face would say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> they said, no, 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 it's all right. you Christian, you're the expert on the Bible. I'm Muslim, I'm expert on the Quran. Mm -hmm. Ask me anything, just ask me anything. You don't know what to ask. Mm -hmm. But then I started thinking, well, uh, it's been just, I guess the seriousness with which they mm -hmm. took that was so unlike what I, mm -hmm. and, and that's when I found out how little I knew about the Bible. And then in the summer of 65, I went back to Nigeria. Okay. And I stayed there for three years. I was in a, a program with a, a college that Hershey Cocoa Company sponsored. Mm -hmm. With Elizabeth Town College in Pennsylvania, okay. they were sending science teachers to countries that they bought a lot of cocoa from okay. to set up secondary science programs, mm -hmm. and that's what I did. I did that at a, at a secondary school in Kaba, which okay. is kind of central Nigeria. Uh, and then that, but after after that, because the war had started, and I had to leave the country. Uh, but the uh, and so I came back to Arkansas then, mm -hmm. and I stayed in Arkansas. 697701, and I left. Mm -hmm. Again, I went up to uh, Carbondale up in Illinois, okay. Southern Illinois. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I stayed there two years, then left and went down to Texas. Mm -hmm. And I stayed there until 76. That's when I came back to Arkansas. I've been back here since then, mm -hmm. since 1976. Mm -hmm. So, out of your, your world travel, and you, mm -hmm. you've been to these different places, of course, mm -hmm. your whole. Place, I, I, Worldview again has totally changed. How did you then begin to perceive the state during those times that you came back? <laughs> nah, I, what I call it, uh, I call it any town USA. Well, I used to any town USA. Now I say any town in the world because mm -hmm. uh, whatever's happening in one place, you can find it happening somewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't. You don't give one. You certainly don't give how higher marked here than you do somewhere else. Yeah. You've been listening to a small portion of an oral history interview with Freeman McCundra that's part of the collections found at ArkansasStudies.org, the Butler Center's digital archive.
This Month in Arkansas History On May 26, 1940, Mark Levon Helm was born outside Elaine, Arkansas. Helm is best known as the drummer and singer for the Canadian rock group The Band. Following the demise of The Band, he continued to have a successful career leading his own band, as well as acting in numerous motion pictures. In 1993, Helm, with rock writer Stephen Davis, published a book about the band's rise to fame titled This Wheels on Fire. In 1994, Helm was inducted, along with the other members of the band, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Helm died of cancer in April 2012. Radio Cows is a production of the Central Arkansas Library System's Community Outreach Department, as well as its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. For more information, please visit cows.org and butlercenter.org. Radio Cows was produced this week by Stephanie Bayless, Kate Shagnon, Stuart Fuel, John Miller, David Strickland, and Glenn Whaley. Voices by Kate Shagnon, Linda Ellis, Mark Hotchkiss, Stacy Pendergraft, and Jasmine Joe. Engineering and editing by Michael Stotts and Anna Lancaster. Our production manager is Glenn Whaley. Our executive producers are Leanne Blackwell Hoskin and David Strickland. For Radio Cows, I'm John Miller. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, Friday at noon, here on KABF 88.3 Little Rock.